Good morning. I'm going to be reading Acts 21, 27 to the end of the chapter. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordained him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not men of the assassins out into the, sorry, are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Ooh, cliffhanger. <laughs> this is our way of getting you to come back next week. Uh, so there, the cliffhanger, you'll have to come see what Paul actually said next week, because I'm not going to tell you today. Uh, have you ever had a, a big, big marriage debate? I mean, like a really big marriage debate. Like, what temperature the house should be? Or maybe what temperature the car should be might even be worse. I mean, how can two people who are on the same page about so many things have such vastly different opinions about a thermostat? I have no idea. Like, seriously, I thought one of the benefits of being a believer was I did not have to experience the heat of hell in my own home. Also, I don't have a desire to go to Antarctica and get frostbite in my own living room because it's, quote, cozier to put a blanket on. The person who has control of the thermostat can make life very interesting for the other people in the house or the car. But people are fickle. Our desire for a certain temperature changes, sometimes apparently for no reason whatsoever, sometimes just because we get up and go to the bathroom. I don't know, our, our desire changes in over and over. True at home, true in the car, 
true in life. I want to be in control of the thermostat of my life. Do you? I want to turn the dial of the heat of my life, really, if we're honest, to cold as often as possible. I don't want to live in heat. I don't want to live in chaos. I don't want to live in the trial of life. I want to control the suffering. I want to know why I'm being refined. I want my hand on that thermostat badly. But it's not. You know this in your mind. But the question for you today is this. Are you okay with the fact that God has control of the thermostat of your life? Are you okay with the fact that God has control of the thermostat of your life? I mean, really. We all want to say, yeah, I'm good with it. But when the heat of life comes, are you really? What, what do I mean by the heat of life? Look at Jeremiah 17, verse 7. It says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heat of life is going to come. Jeremiah 17 assumes that's true. Trial, refining is going to come in your life. It's going to happen. The question is, what do we do when it does? Or what are you doing right now when it is here? Some of you are living this right now in this moment. What's that look like for you? Here's where we need to be. This is our big idea for the day. This is where we need to get. My God is sovereign, so I will trust him. My God is sovereign, so I will trust him. And we all want to be there. We all want to live there. And yet it's so hard in the midst of trial and suffering to actually get our hearts fixed on that truth. So to help us get there this morning, I want to look at three truths about the sovereignty of God. Three truths about the sovereignty of God. The first is this. Sometimes God allows the heat. Sometimes God allows the heat. Look back at verse 27 of Acts 21. When the seven days were almost completed. Okay, well, let's, let's just stop there. Because what seven days, what are we talking about? Okay, look back up at verse 21. Jamie taught on this last week. And they have been told about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we, the elders, tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. 
So what payment? So they're under a Nazarite vow. If you go to number six, this is all lined out for you and what they should be doing. We're not going to take the time to go there, but at, to boil it down, they had to bring a lamb. They had to bring a grain offering of bread. They had to bring a drink offering, and all this had to be paid for in order for them to enter the temple in a cleansed sort of way. This is what's happening. This is what the elders instructed Paul to do. They're telling everybody that you're preaching all of this stuff. You're doing things you shouldn't be doing. So prove to them that you're not. Go under a Nazarite vow. Pay for these other guys to do it as well. And go into the temple in a cleansed sort of way. So this is what Paul's doing when we get to our text. He's entering the temple. The problem is it doesn't quite work out like the elders hoped that it would. Uh, In fact, it goes very, very wrong. Let's continue to read on in verse 27. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut." So they hoped it was going to smooth things over. Clearly it doesn't. Paul gets dragged out of the temple to be beaten under two false accusations. What accusations do they make? The first is that he's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Is that true? Was Paul actually doing that? Everyone say, no, he wasn't doing that. Everyone say, no, he wasn't doing that. Are you guys awake? You got an extra hour of sleep. Come on. He wasn't. In fact, he circumcised Timothy. He was following the law at some points, not at every point. Some points he was speaking against it, others not. But the point is, he surely wasn't doing it for everyone everywhere. And there's an escalation even from what they claimed in verse 21. Did you catch that? Look back at verse 21. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. So just among the Jewish people, and now they're saying he's telling everyone everywhere. So there's this escalation. They didn't get out of the situation what they wanted last time, so they just keep drumming up the problem. So that's the first false accusation. The second is that he brought Greeks into the temple. We never, ever see that Paul brought a Greek into the temple. In fact, Paul would not have done that because he knows it would have been suicide. The, the Greek historian Josephus records that there was a wall outside the temple that said, don't bring anyone unworthy of coming into the temple or you will be killed in like seven different languages just to make sure everybody got it. Paul knew that. He might have been crazy at some points, but he wasn't dumb to just, if he took Trophimus in with him, clearly he knows that he would have been executed. So, Why did they think that? Well, there had to be some people from the crowd in Ephesus that last stirred up this thing against Paul that came with them to Jerusalem. How do we know that? Well, Twitter didn't exist. Facebook didn't exist. How did they know Paul was with Trophimus in Ephesus? 
How did they know that was a thing? How, how in the world would they have known that? Well, they had to experience it or see it or know somebody. So there was part of the crowd from Ephesus that had come to Jerusalem to continue to persecute Paul in this crowd. Okay, all of that true. Why, why did they seize Paul? Paul really hadn't done the things they were accusing him of. He wasn't guilty. And normally, a person charged with such an offense would have been handed over to the temple authorities, put on trial, and then if found guilty, he would have been executed. But apparently, in this instance, they decided, we're going to bypass all that. We're just going to take care of the execution piece on our own. But Paul had no way of knowing that it was going to escalate to this point. He probably thought with the elders, you know what? That's a pretty good plan. This might kind of de-escalate the situation. Paul was bold enough. If he didn't, he probably would have said he didn't think that it was a good plan. And then this, he's getting dragged out of the temple and beaten. It seemed like it came out of left field. And don't trials often feel like that for us? Like, ooh, wasn't looking for that. Didn't see that coming. It just comes out of nowhere. It feels like, but the reality is that's not true. It comes from somewhere. So trials from a human perspective, come really from three different places. The heat of life comes from three different places. The first is this, heat can come because of our sin. Sin has consequences, and sometimes we find ourselves in the midst of trial and suffering because we've made sinful choices, and that's the consequence for our sin. Heat, trial can come because of others' sins. So sometimes we aren't sinning directly, but we're caught in the crossfire of other people's sin, and we end up in a trial because of it. And the third is this. Heat can come because we live in a sin-cursed world that isn't perfect. And sometimes things happen because we live in an imperfect world. We experience heat because we aren't perfect because other people aren't perfect, and because the world isn't perfect. But, but, over all of that, heat always comes from a sovereign God. Always comes from a sovereign God. Let me prove it to you. Look at Ephesians 1.11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works, What? All things according to the counsel of his will. How many things? All things. Most things? Many things? A couple of things? All things. Look at Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people you know from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Light, darkness, well-being, calamity. God does all these things. God's sovereign. God's in control. God's not the author of sin. 
Let's be clear about that. Nor does he do sinful things, but he is so sovereign that he can use sinful people and a sinful world to accomplish his purposes. That's how amazingly awesome our God is. He doesn't have to sin, but he can use sinners and still get done what he wants to get done. So it can be helpful to examine why we're sitting in a trial. There's nothing wrong with some introspection to say, did my sinfulness cause me to be here? But if we're honest, we spend way more time in the trial trying to figure out why we're in the trial than we do looking at anything else. And the reason we do that is because we want to figure out how to fix why we're in the trial so we can get out of the trial. Your trial is caused by some sort of sin from a human perspective in some way. It's your own, somebody else's, the world's. The reality is you're probably sitting even while you're in it, even if your sin wasn't what got you there. But we need to step back and say, regardless of why I'm here, what does God have for me? Where should my eyes be fixed? Because here's the reality. Your hope isn't in getting to the other side of the trial. Your hope is not in getting to the other side of the trial. It's in Christ, in Christ alone. Let me prove it. Look at James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. One Greek lexicon defined that word steadfast this way, to maintain a belief or course of action in the face of opposition, to stand one's ground, to hold out, to endure. We don't think of trials like that. I don't want to endure I don't want to remain steadfast. I want to get out of this thing as fast as I possibly can. Look at Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that... But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering, the heat, our trials, they ultimately produce hope. The heat should be pressing us to Jesus. But we spend so much time trying to not be in the trial that we often function like a functional open theist. What, what do I mean when I say a functional open theist? Well, open theism is a theology that says God does not know the future. And in fact, he cannot know the future because if he does, then I don't actually have free will. My choices have to define what God is going to do in order for me to truly have free will. There's one problem with that. The Bible. 
that doesn't fit with the word of God. It, it's heresy. And I hope from a theological perspective, we would all look at that and say, you know what, theologically, that is absolutely incorrect. And then the heat of life comes. And I function like this, you function like this. If I figure out why I'm in this trial, then fix why I'm in this trial, then God will have to understand that now I need to be on the other side of this trial. He'll know I don't need to be here anymore because I fixed it, we're good. Bye-bye trial. But is that really how a sovereign God is going to operate? Does he operate by just waiting for me to finally get this thing right so that he'll take me out of the trial? Sometimes I hope not because I can be very, very thick-headed sometimes. And if I have to learn something to get out of the trial, I might be in a trial forever. But if we operate that way, it's really open theist thinking. It's not how God operates. God has his hand on the thermostat. He knows what you need. He knows when you need it. He knows how much of it you need. He's not dependent on you putting the puzzle together in order to figure it out. If I have to figure out the puzzle to get to the other side of the trial, whose hand is on the thermostat? My hand is on the thermostat. Church, that puts us in the driver's seat of controlling God. That's not the Bible I read. That's not how the God I know functions. This is why we need to remain steadfast under the trial. It doesn't matter why you're there. Regardless of what got you there, I can tell you what God wants for you in it. He wants you to see more of Jesus. He wants hope for you. Get your eyes off the trial. Get your eyes on Jesus. We want to look at our circumstances and loathe our circumstances and just sit in that. But what God wants us to do is say, I'm not about the trial. I'm about pressing Jesus more deeply into your life through the hard. Can I give you uh, an example from my own life? I mean, I don't know why I asked the question because you say, no, I'm going to do it anyways. But in, in a previous ministry, I had a lot of difficulty. It was a really, really challenging season for me and for my family. There was personal attack. There was a lack of support from church leadership. There was really, it felt like in seasons, a general discord about anything that I wanted to do. It, it was really hard. And I can look back and I say, why was I in that trial? And I can tell you that my sinfulness played a role in that trial. I wasn't humble at times when I needed to be humble. I had issues of self-reliance that manifested themselves in that. I can say that the sinfulness of other people played a role in that trial. I was gossiped about. I was slandered about. Other leaders struggled with the fear of men and how they did or did not support me. I can say that living in a sinful world played a part in that. We didn't have unlimited resources, and some of the decisions that needed to be made just weren't possible because of some things that were present. And I can tell you that when I was in that trial, I consistently saw the sinfulness of other people. I saw the attack that I was facing. 
I didn't so much see my sinfulness. I didn't so much see the sinfulness of the world around me that was just causing some of the difficulty. And I can say I didn't handle that trial perfectly, not even close to perfectly. But by God's grace, that trial led me to his word. And it led me to say, what is church really? What should this look like? And I pursued for 12 months in the word of God what that should look like. And it pressed me closer in relationship to God with a deeper understanding of who he is and how he wants his church to function. That trial grew me. And then it brought me to a, a different season that eventually led to other trials. But, but the point is this, why was I in the trial? I don't care at the end of the day why I was in the trial. Why? Because God used the trial to press me closer to him. So why was I there? I don't know, fully. But I know that on the other side, I had a closer relationship with Jesus because of it. And I can tell you, that was over a decade ago. And I can look back on that trial and I can see that God has done more in my heart than I even knew in the moment. So if I had to learn every nuance of what he wanted me to learn, I would have been in that trial for over a decade because I didn't even see it all clearly. I probably still don't standing here today. I can look back now and say, yes, God was doing a whole lot in my heart, more in my heart than I knew he was doing. But this is the point. You don't need to figure out what he why you're there, just pursue him. He wants your heart. That's why you're in the heats because he wants you to love Jesus more, more fully. And the refining fires is where that happens. But whose hand do you really want to be on the thermostat? Sovereign God or you? How are you seeing Jesus in your trials? Are you in a trial right now? Are you searching mostly how to get out of the trial or are you looking for Jesus and where he is in the midst of the trial? Maybe you're not there today, but where were you in the sense of your last trial? What were you looking for, to get out or to find Jesus? See, our God is sovereign enough, loving enough to put us under the heat of life because he wants more of Jesus pressed into our hearts. Three truths about the sovereignty of God. The first, sometimes God allows the heat. The second, sometimes God stops the heat. Sometimes God stops the heat. Look back at verse 31 of Acts 21. <clears throat> And as they were seeking to kill him, Paul, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribu tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he has done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought back into the barracks. And when he had came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. 
For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So Paul's dragged out of the temple. He's getting beaten by a large crowd of people. And given the amount of people in this crowd and how violently they are responding against Paul, he should have died. He should not have survived this attack. But God, in his sovereignty, sends soldiers. And not just like one or two soldiers, but hundreds of soldiers. How do we know that? Because it says that there were centurions, plural. Each centurion oversees at least 100 soldiers. So there were at least 200, maybe more, that intervened to save Paul. And before that, God had probably intervened to save Paul because it wouldn't have taken all that long for a group that big to actually kill him. God sovereignly intervened in that moment to save Paul. But not just in that moment, in moments leading up to that moment. What do I mean? Well, why were these soldiers so close? Because... Herod was a little frantic and crazy, and he built the Antonia fortress that we'll see here where the soldiers would be close. So over here, this all is the fortress. This is the temple, and there is literally a walkway across from the fortress to the temple. The Jews would not have been excited about this, by the way. They would have been like, why in the world are we letting a fortress be built this close to the temple? They wouldn't have been excited about it, but God allowed it. Why? Because he knew he would use those soldiers to save the life of the Apostle Paul in this moment, on this day, in this way. Because he's that sovereign. God stopped the trial for Paul. He sovereignly planned that it would happen in the way that it happened. He spared his life. And sometimes God stops our trials too. Sometimes God turns down the thermostat. Sometimes we get to the other side of the trials. But where does that lead us? Where does it lead Paul? What does Paul do on the other side of the trial? Does he cower? Does he say never again? I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the Apostle Paul. A group of angry mob drag you out of the temple, drag you into this place, and start beating you. In his mind, he had to be thinking, this is it. This is how it ends. Does he run? I mean, that's what I would want to do. Uh, I'm out of here. These people are crazy. Time to move on to the next thing. No, no. He doesn't stop with the mission he's been given. He is completely unwavering. He's going to stand up. You're going to hear about it next week and preach a sermon to the very people who beat him. The trial doesn't push Paul away from Jesus. It pushes him to him. It pushes him to the mission that he has been given. It further confirms it in him. So I've told part of this story before, but in elementary school and middle school, I got pretty into roller hockey. 
And my brother and I would go out in the driveway and we would play most days. We would play with my cousins at my grandma's house and break windows in their glass garage door because we weren't all that good. But we used to do it all the time. It, it was a thing. And at the time, roller hockey was gaining some national momentum. And so I was going and seeing my cousin play and my brother play. And I thought, naturally, because I am who I am, like, I'm going to be a roller hockey professional. This is going to be amazing until eighth grade youth group trip to the roller dome. My mom drops me off, and maybe three minutes later, about two and a half laps around, I fall and break my wrists. And I've never been on rollerblades ever since that day. That trial ended my future Hall of Fame rocker roller hockey career. Right there. Pushed me away from roller hockey. I haven't been on rollerblades for 25 years. Misplaced hope and trial can lead us away from the thing it's supposed to push us to. Even after God turns down the heat. God isn't out to get you, church. He's pushing you to the greatest good that exists, and that is his son, Jesus. He knows that there is nothing else that is going to satisfy your soul like Jesus does. And if he has to put you through some refining fire to get you there, that's love. That's grace. To allow you, his child, who he loves deeply, to walk through that, because he knows that on the other side stands a hope like you have never experienced. Trials are a way to press you there. But when we leave trials, there's a danger that it strips from us some of our love for Jesus. that where you are or like Paul it can press us deeper into Christ where we are more sold out for him more passionate for him are you holding on to bitterness from past trials do you struggle to trust God because in his sovereignty, he has allowed some things to happen in your life that have been very, very hard for you to walk through. Hear me say this. Trials are really, really hard. And they're extra hard because they're custom fit for you. What seems hard to you might not seem so hard to somebody else that you hang out with on a regular basis, but God is so after your heart and so sovereign that he is giving you what is hard for you because he wants you to see Jesus more fully. So it makes trials all that much harder. And let me say, don't wrestle those alone. A lot of my church experience has been, it's not okay to not be okay. The expectation is, I come in on Sunday morning, somebody says, how are you? I say, great. They say, great. We move on. And then I walk out of the doors, and I'm living whatever I'm living, heat, trial, suffering, and I'm doing it alone because it's not okay to say I'm not okay. That is not biblical Christianity. 
The Bible is real. It understands where you are. You know why? Because there is a God who is real, who understands who you are, and he wrote it for you. Sometimes life is hard, like really, really, really hard. And you need people to weep with you. You need them to sit with you in the muck and the mire. You need them to hold you up when it's hard. Sometimes you need them to say, look, you're looking at this trial too much. Let me show you Jesus. That's not only what we would be nice for us to be doing. It's what we're commanded to do. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, 2 says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's literally what we're called to do, church, to bear each other's burdens. And when we do that, we fulfill the law of Christ. It's okay to not be okay. We don't want you to stay there, but it's okay to not be okay. We have people trained to walk with you through the heart. Your small group leaders are trained. Biblical counselors are trained to help you walk through what is hard. Don't suffer alone, church. Drag it to the light. Be open and honest and real. Because here's the thing. What I want, what we want for you is to come out from the other side of the trial loving Jesus more. And if you suffer alone, bitterness will sneak in way quicker than you ever think. Don't waste the trial. Bring other people alongside you to help you see Jesus in the midst of it. God has you in the trial, but there's hope. There is hope. We can rejoice in suffering because there's hope, and that hope is Jesus. I don't know why you're in the trial that you're in, but what I do know is your God wants you to see Jesus more fully. That's why you're there. If the trial you're in were to never end, but you were closer to Jesus, more passionately in love with him, isn't that actually better? I want to say that in trial, but do I honestly believe it? If I never get to the end of the trial, but I love Jesus more fully, isn't that more amazing? Isn't that better? Do you honestly believe that? Can you honestly say that in the chair you're sitting today? Three truths about the sovereignty of God. First, sometimes God allows the heat. The second, sometimes God stops the heat. And the third is this, God always accomplishes his purpose. God always accomplishes his purpose. Look at verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarshish in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And there, when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. What happens? 
little bit of a cliffhanger. We'll get there next week. Come back. But Paul gets the opportunity to speak to the crowd. And a little bit of a spoiler, what's he going to speak about? The gospel and the goodness of God. But the fact that Paul can stand up and speak, does that strike you? Because it should. Against all odds, Paul can step up and speak. The man should be dead. And at the very least, he probably doesn't naturally want to get up and be like, hey, this is a great time to preach a sermon. And yet, God sovereignly empowers Paul after saving him to speak. He gives him the energy and the ability. He had given Paul pedigree. That's why Paul says, I grew up in Tarsus. This gives his, this gives his testimony weight for the Roman officials to even allow him to speak. God had orchestrated every event of Paul's life to this one point in time to be able to speak to these people. And Paul will never be free again. God gets done what God wants to get done. Paul shouldn't have been able to speak that day. He should have been dead. But God got done what God wanted to get done. Against all odds, even when it was unnatural, God got it done. Job 42 verse 2 says this, and Job is saying this. Job knew a little bit about suffering. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. How many purposes can be thwarted? None. No purpose. God wins every single time. End of the story. It's like playing Candyland with a toddler. I don't know what is going on in the land of candy, but I lose every time I play the game somehow because the the sovereign toddler always changes the rules so that they win every single time. God's like the toddler. I mean, without the crying and fits and general sinfulness, okay, every illustration breaks down, but you get the point. God is in control. He is going to accomplish what he sets out to do. No one, nothing else can say that. Any other person, any other thing that you experience can fail. Every single one of them, but not your God. His purposes never, ever fail. But do we trust that? Actually. Do we actually believe that our God doesn't fail? Or do we feel like, man, I'm in this trial because God got this one wrong? I know that some of you in this room right now are mad at God. You're bitter. You're bitter because God lets you walk through something really hard. Or maybe you're walking right now through something hard. You don't understand how a God who loves you would let such hard things happen to you in your life. But what I want you to know this morning is that it's precisely because you have a God that loves you so much that he's allowing you to walk through the hard. Because 
He knows that the only thing that will ever satisfy your soul, the only thing that is actually going to bring you hope, the only thing that will actually make your life better is to see Jesus more fully. And it's sometimes it takes heat. Sometimes it takes a trial for us to get there. And so he loves you enough to allow you to walk through that because he wants the satisfaction of your soul to be on Jesus. He knows that those hard things should help drive us to Jesus. But it's still hard. And I want you to hear me say again, if you're struggling this morning, come talk to us. We have people equipped and trained that want to walk through this with you. We love you. We don't want you to struggle alone. And we want to help you stay, not stay in the hard. For the rest of us, we need truth to set our hearts on. Because we may not be in a trial, but another trial is coming at some point because our God loves us enough to take us through them. And so this is a song that I have been meaning to introduce to you for months at this point and have not gotten to. So I want to sing this song over you. I want you to join in and sing this song as you grab it because it's jam-packed full of truth that you need. And I want it to penetrate your hearts. I want it to fill your mind because when you hit the trial, you need to be able to sing the words of this song. It's hard. It's not easy. But we need this truth to penetrate our hearts. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, th I thank you that you are a God who loves us enough to put us through hard things because you know that on the other side of the hard things is a savior that we need to be seeing more fully. God, I pray that in the midst of trial, you would help us get our eyes off of ourselves, get our eyes off of the circumstance and on to Jesus. God, I pray for those in this room who may be walking through that trial right now. God, I pray you would give them the, the strength to endure. I pray you would give them the strength to drag that to the light and not suffer alone. Because what you have for them is so much better. And the beauty of the body of Christ is that we can come alongside one another and love and equip and encourage each other. Press each other deeper into Jesus. God, whether we're in that trial now, whether it's a trial that's coming later in life, whether it's a trial we need to look back on, God, just show us Jesus. Help us see him as the satisfaction of our soul and that all of the way that you are sovereignly working and moving in our lives, even through trial, is to point to that one thing, that Jesus is better. Help us trust you in all this. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. What hair my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. He will be still whatever he does and 
for the strength to do that. To leave the trajectory of my life sovereignly in your hand without the need or the desire to control and change outcomes. Knowing that not only do you have your hand on the thermostat of my suffering, you are loving and gracious and good as you do. God, I pray we would see Jesus more fully because of past suffering, because of present suffering, because of the suffering and trial and heat of life that we'll walk through in the future. Show us Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You are loved.